Well, as I mentioned earlier, we have been looking in the book of Revelation uh, for a number of weeks, getting near the end now. Uh, actually, after this week, just two weeks left. Uh, next week in the book of Revelation, heaven comes down, and in the following week, the very last chapter of the Bible, the river of life, the tree of life. Uh, but today, what we're looking at is Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. If you can use a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 1039. 1039. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. Uh, everybody needs one, and you can take that one. Feel free to keep it. It's yours. Um, but today we'll be in Revelation chapter 19. As we've been looking at Revelation, John the Apostle, last apostle, last disciple alive, has been exiled to the prison island of Patmos. And Jesus has come and is giving him a vision of the end times. And he's shown him a number of things that are going to happen when the end comes. A number of devastating uh, elements of destruction around the world. And we get to the end. Uh, we saw last week in Revelation uh, chapter 18 that the, the world culture, Babylon as it's called in Revelation, which is symbolic of the evil world culture, has fallen, has been destroyed, has been completely used up by its leaders and run into the ground. And now this week, everything comes to a head. Revelation chapter 19, John writes, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, that's what they call Babylon, the ones leading people away from faithfulness in God, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of her servants. So a cry of hallelujah rings out, a cry of praise, because the evil world culture has been destroyed, no longer leading people away from God. And so that is a cry for, uh, uh, def definitely a cry for praise that this, this massive influence that is leading people away from God has been taken down. Look at verse 3. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Now these beings, if you, if you weren't here a number of weeks ago, the 24 elders, these are thrones that are near God's throne. And uh, the four creatures, these are, are creatures that are flying around God's throne, praising constantly. So the point of these 24, the point of the four, is just to praise God. We see them praise God all the way back when they're introduced at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. And actually this is the last mention of them in the book of Revelation. And we see them again praising God. They're known for praising God. How would you like that to be your legacy? What is your legacy? If you were to ask those around you, like, how do, you, do I come across? What do you know me for? Having a good attitude, a bad attitude, complaining a lot, smiling a lot, not saying much, looking at my phone a lot. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, they are known in the book of Revelation for one thing, praising God. And we see them here saying, amen, let it happen. 
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Uh, John continues writing in verse 5. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our, our God, the Almighty, reigns. So God's receiving praise all over the place uh, from this great multitude back up in verse 1, uh, from the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures in verse 4, uh, and now uh, here in verse 5, uh, or no, uh, verse 6, a uh, voice of a great multitude again, uh, John's trying to describe what it sounds like, uh, and that's why we get several descriptions. Uh, this massive cry out of these voices sounds like the roar of many waters, sound of, of a whole lot of thunder, uh, crying out all at once, just this massive have you ever heard a sound, been to a concert maybe, and you can feel it in your chest, and, and it's almost bursting your eardrums with the loudness of the sound? That's the idea that John's describing here. The sound of these voices in praise to God is so massive that it's shaking him as though a bunch of lightning were going off at one time, like in the storm we had just a few weeks ago, did lightning go off near your house and like rattle the house? It's that kind of imagery here John's experiencing with this praise to God. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, some very interesting imagery here. Uh, in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as the bride of uh, God. And here, uh, the bride is believers, which actually, if you look at the Old Testament, the bride being Israel, Israel in the Old Testament was the believers. Uh, you know, people who weren't um, physical Israel, descendants of Jacob, could still be called Israel according to Old Testament law if they converted and were brought into the fold. And similarly here, uh, uh, the bride of God are the believers, just as it always has been. It says it's time uh, for the marriage of the Lamb, of Jesus. Uh, the bride has made herself ready. It's, it's, again, this is all symbolic language. It's all imagery. The bride being the church, being Christians, we have made ourselves ready. We are prepared for the end. We are prepared to physically be with God in heaven is the idea. Granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That the bride's clothes are very special. And the bride's clothes, us being the bride, us Christians, being the ones who will be united with Christ, the clothes we put on are the righteous deeds of the saints. That is, how we live for Christ are the clothes we are wearing. Because clothes are visible to everyone. And in the same way for the Christian, how you live is visible to everyone. And so the hope would be then that our righteous deeds, living for Christ, is visible to everyone in everything we say, everything we do, how we walk about our daily lives, that it's visible. And that's how we're presented to him in that day. Anyone looking at the church, the Christians, will see how we have adorned ourselves in looking at us. 
It's similar to what Jesus said in his prayer in John chapter 17, uh, as well as uh, the world will know us by how we treat one another, that how we present ourselves is how we are seen by other people. Jesus said that how in his context he was talking about how Christians treat one another will be uh, will determine whether or not the world knows that they are his. Have you ever noticed sometimes, none of you people, this is all out there, have you ever noticed sometimes Christians can be the meanest to other Christians? Almost as though we give more grace to non-Christians. But when it comes to treating each other, we kick each other when we're down, verbally, with our minds, with our gossip. With, we're, we're very quick to spread rumors about other Christians, not willing to shut it down in any capacity. Because, honestly, that is temptation from the enemy, trying to lessen the potential witness of God's people. Whereas God would have us treat one another with infinite grace and mercy. God would have us assume the best about somebody else, particularly Christians. Those who are, in words of Paul, are of the household of God. So here we're presented in how we have lived, our righteous deeds, how we have lived for God. Uh, Verse 9, and the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, so those who believe. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. This is an angel, John's worshiping. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John gets caught up in the moment, and he falls down to worship the angel, and the angel stops him and says, you need to stop this mess. You're only supposed to worship God. You're only supposed to attribute what you're attributing to me to God. The attention you're giving me, the focus you're giving me is only supposed to be for God. So let's recalibrate what you're doing here, John, and just worship God. That your your focus on the Lord and not on me, would be what your life is all about, pursuing. He says that interesting phrase, this angel, I am a fellow servant with you. I'm serving alongside you. I'm serving with you, John. I'm serving in the same capacity, in the same way you are. Our goals are the same, that we are supposed to be pursuing what God would have us to pursue, to bring glory to him in testifying about Jesus is what he says there. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Where testimony is interesting, you know, it's the testimony of Jesus is the gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus. Testimony, it means a witness who can and does speak from personal experience with a person or personal experience from events that they have participated in or personal experience from an event that has happened to them. So it's declaring a testimony about something you have personal experience in whether it's a person or an event, an activity. And so he says you have to to be declaring this testimony about Jesus because if you're a follower of Jesus, you've had personal experience with Jesus. And it's supposed to come out in how you speak, communicate about Jesus. 
It's not just in, as he mentioned a minute ago, righteous deeds and living for God. You got to speak it too. You got to say it too. You got to communicate that you are a follower of Jesus. That's why your life is different because you follow Jesus. You know, there's that great quote that the internet always attributes to St. Francis preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. St. Francis never said that. You know who said that? The internet. And as Abraham Lincoln always says, believe everything you read on the internet. You've got to speak the gospel. Speak it. Communicate it. Otherwise, nobody's going to know why you're living the way you do. Nobody's going to know why you're living that way. Nobody's going to know why you're acting the way you do, speak the way you do, unless you communicate, this is because of Jesus. This is because of Jesus. Why do you think the command from Jesus was to go and tell the world? It wasn't just go and walk out there and live good and maybe somebody will ask you about it. It was no go and tell, go and say it, speak it. That's why the word here is testimony. You speak about what you have experience about. We're so quick, and man, I'm at the top of the list. We're so quick to communicate when we've been to a good restaurant or we had some good food. Man, we will tell everybody, you need to go there and order this. It is the best thing you have ever had in your life. If you have not had the, uh, I can't even remember the name of it, the chocolate chip pecan cheesecake at Stillwell's, you are missing out. I'm telling you right now. But... That's what we had that a couple days ago for Katie's birthday. It was so good. But when it comes to communicating the gospel, it's, it's like we get this fear that weighs us down and we can't say it. Makes us nervous. Makes, builds up our anxiety. And we just cannot, we're, we can't get the words out. We'd rather talk about the chocolate chip pecan cheesecake. We'd rather talk about our sport favorite sports team. We'd rather talk about the brutal heat or the terrible rain. We'd rather talk, and I would say terrible rain because I tried mowed yes, mowing yesterday and I was slipping, sliding, and doing all kinds of crazy stuff in the yard. But we talk about everything except the one thing that matters. And he's saying here, this angel, he says, I am a fellow servant. But who's he a fellow servant with? Those who hold to the testimony speak the word of God, the gospel of Jesus. That's what defines us, speaking what our experience with Jesus has been. You see, servants of God speak about their personal experience with Jesus and what he has done for them. Servants of God speak about their personal experience with Jesus and what he has done for them. It's not easy. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't. And that is, a, that is a tool of the enemy. That's why it doesn't come easy. He didn't want it to be easy. But if we're servants of God, we will speak about it. It will be a part of our conversation if we've had a personal experience with Jesus. Now look what happens next. Verse 11. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, as we have looked at Revelation, 
we have seen it's not all chronological. There's things that happen in order. There's things that happen out of order. There's things that happen in different places. This is a, a separate section than what came before. Uh, uh, Timeline-wise, we're not sure. But what has happened here is shooting out of the sky, John is seeing this. There's a white horse and a rider riding on the horse. It's called Faithful and True. And, and I don't know what Bibles you're using, uh, but in almost every translation I found, those words are capitalized. Because of who this is riding on this white horse. This is Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees everything. And he has many diadems on his head, many crowns on his head. If you've been here throughout the study of Revelation, we have seen the Antichrist had some crowns on his head. Satan had some crowns on his head. Uh, I believe, I've got it here in my notes, yeah. Uh, Satan had seven crowns. The Antichrist had ten crowns, but notice how many crowns Jesus has. Many. Many. Not just a specific number, more than you can count. That's not saying he's got this massive tower of crowns on his head. What John is communicating here is that the authority and power of Jesus is far more than Satan and the Antichrist. Like, it doesn't even come close you got seven on Satan, you got ten on the Antichrist. Jesus has so many you can't even count them. We're not talking 20, we're not talking 30, we're not talking 50, we're not talking 100. He says so many you can't count. So try to put that in, in context, right? Satan's got seven, Antichrist has ten, and Jesus has infinity. Just this massive pile of crowns. It kind of makes Satan and Antichrist's authority and power look pretty minuscule by comparison. It's supposed to. So here we have Jesus riding in on this white horse. He's got a name written that no one knows. It's, the thing about that is you know about Scripture as well. The more you know about Jesus, the more you realize there's so much you don't know. The same is true of Scripture. The more you know of Scripture, the more you realize there's so much you don't know. You could study it every day. From seven years old to 107 years old and still find new stuff. God can still speak anew through all of it. That's part of why eternity is going to be so amazing as we learn more about God every day at every juncture. New points of his character and nature we hadn't seen before or hadn't realized before. And so here's an element that Jesus is coming in. He's got a name no one knows but himself. Further description, verse 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's straight from John chapter 1. That's the name he gives Jesus in John chapter 1. This is Jesus. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, two quick things. Back in verse 13, he's wearing a robe that's been dipped in blood. He hasn't even entered the battle yet, and he's already covered in blood. The blood is his own. Jesus having died and risen from the dead. Jesus, who is demonstrating what it looks like to come back to life. If you remember back chapters and chapters ago when the Antichrist showed up, it said that he would appear as though he had died and come back to life. But now Jesus is coming in in a robe dipped in his uh, sacrificial blood, saying there's no more appearing mess. I am here to show you what it really looks like. He's, he's showing to, to the world at that moment 
his sacrifice in his robe dipped in blood. And how intimidating is that if you're going out to battle and the one you're coming uh, against is flying in full strength, full authority, and he's already covered in blood before he gets there. That'd be kind of scary. But here comes Jesus flying in. And it says, behind him, it says following him, are the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Now what they're wearing is exactly what we saw a few minutes ago that the Christians are wearing. So that leads us to believe these are Christians, us, who are following him in. But notice also, it says they're following him. They're not accompanying him into battle. They're following him into battle. He doesn't need help. If anything, the believers are there just to watch going into battle. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. A couple, this is, I love this imagery. It is, you think, okay, he's, flying, he, he's coming in covered in blood and sword is shooting out of his mouth. Uh, the sword coming out of his mouth, that sword, that sharp sword, that's a description from earlier in Scripture. Um, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 4 says the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Ephesians chapter 6 says the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. This is the word of God that is being spoken out, and it will strike down any who stand in opposition to it just as much as it has power to save and he says there that Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Now, we don't know much about a winepress in today's context. You know, it was a place they put the grapes, they would stomp on it, and it would go out into grape juice that they would take and ferment. Well, a few chapters ago in the book of Revelation, it talked about God having a winepress and the cups being, or bowls, excuse me, uh, being filled with the wine of the wrath of God that would then be poured out. This, that's what makes us believe some of this is out of chronological order or they're all happening, some of them, at the same time. Uh, this wrath that's being poured out was poured out just a few chapters ago. We saw it poured out uh, just a few chapters ago. And Jesus is the one who instigates that wrath. Uh, verse 16. On his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the name is on his robe, on his thigh, it's close, it's powerful. It's also easily recognizable. Remember, in John's perspective, Jesus is coming in from the sky. So John, being on the ground, can see it from where he's on the ground, this name. Uh, he is king of kings and lord of lords, supreme ruler over everyone and everything, past, present, and future. Verse 17, then I saw an angel. Standing in the sun with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Now, that's different. We, we saw a minute ago a, a great supper, the, uh, the wedding feast. This is different than that. Uh, that was celebratory. This is uh, uh, an image of an end of a battle. It says, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. The flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. That image uh, is to anyone being in ancient battle, the 
birds of prey coming in was the sign of the battle being finished, over. That when the birds came, the battle was done. When the birds came to, to feed, the battle was over. And so the, the, the birds are being called before the battle's even fought to say, this is about to be settled. This really isn't going to be much of a battle. Jesus is coming out. This is about to be over. All said and all done. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's hell. So notice, though, in that verse, before the battles even fought, Jesus just, the appearance is, just walks across the battlefield, grabs the Antichrist, grabs his right-hand man, the false prophet, and they get thrown straight into the lake of fire, into hell. Verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him, the word of God, who is sitting on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. So that's the end of the battle. It's already been done. It's already been taken care of. Uh, Jesus has finished it just with a word. But this battle, this isn't the final imagery of this battle. We're going to see it again here in this next chapter. Let's look at chapter 20 as we get into one of the most controversial parts of the book of Revelation. Y'all ready for that? Anybody like controversy? Nobody raised your hand. I wonder why. All right, here we go. Verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. chain. Now, we've seen the bottomless pit before in the book of Revelation. The bottomless pit, the abyss, as it's also called, is a place where evil resides. Uh, earlier in the book of Revelation, it's opened and evil's let out to do some, some bad stuff on the earth. And now here, an angel comes down, and he's got the key to it. Verse 2. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now we see, it's interesting that Jesus, who has just done business with the battle, Jesus sends an errand boy to take care of Satan. And he, this angel goes, must be a mighty angel, grabs Satan, throws him into this bottomless pit for a thousand years, it says. And we're going to see Jesus is going to reign for this thousand years. Now, this is where things get a little funky. There's lots of opinions about this thousand-year business. Lots of, lots of like, you, you say, oh, I've got to handle like five, ten, like way more than that. Lots of opinions on this. There's three primary opinions on what is meant by this thousand-year period. It's called the millennium, the millennial kingdom. It's very hotly debated. And I'm going to give you the three primary beliefs about this, and then I'll tell you what I think. There's one that's called premillennialism. It says that Jesus will return, and then Satan will literally be bound in a literal bottomless pit for a literal thousand-year period. And during that time, Jesus is going to literally, physically reign on the earth. 
There's another line of thinking. It's called amillennialism. It says that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. And at that point, Satan was bound and thrown into the abyss. And the thousand-year reign is symbolical of the age of the Christians, of the church that we're currently living in. There's another one. It's called post-millennialism. It says that Christians will usher in the thousand-year period of time, the peaceful reign of Christ, that Christians will usher it in through evangelism by spreading the gospel, and more and more people will hear about Christ, and that will be the spread of Christ. Satan will be released, and Jesus will return in victory. Now, those are the three primary explanations for this thousand-year period. Uh, But as I've told you guys in my communication of the book of Revelation throughout these weeks, I think we have to look at the book of Revelation as it is in-time prophecy, Um, Even in biblical study, it is its own category, end-time prophecy. It's different than regular prophecy. It's end-time prophecy. And I I tend to believe you have to interpret it either all literal or all figurative, that you can't jump between literal and figurative interpretations based upon how you feel about it, that unless it says this is literally going to happen this way or this is figuratively how it's going to happen this way. You have to interpret it all the same. Otherwise, it's based on me, and I'm a sinful person trying to interpret this based on my sinful feelings. And so for me, the thousand-year period is symbolic. As we've seen symbolism throughout the book of Revelation, it's symbolic for completeness. At the end of this section uh, here that we're going to see, Satan is going to gather the world to fight a mighty battle that we just saw happen in chapter 19. Uh, So ultimately, whatever it means, Satan is going to be restricted, whether literally for a thousand years or symbolically uh, for for a complete period of time. But I want to point out one thing that I find very interesting about this. It says there in verse 3, Satan is going to be put in the bottomless pit, it's going to be shut and sealed, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Because it's going to be said in a minute, he's going to go to the nations and deceive them and gather them to battle, to battle against God, to battle against Jesus. But notice it doesn't say that he is prevented from doing anything else. It only says that he's prevented from deceiving the nations to usher in this end battle. So to me, again, I could be absolutely wrong. You're welcome to disagree with me. We can be totally wrong and I think we're going to get to heaven and be like, oh, that's what it all meant. Okay, I get it now. I'm, I'm happy being wrong about some of this. Uh, but I, the way I interpret this is that uh, this period of time, this complete period of time, Satan is limited from doing this. He's limited from deceiving the nations for this great last end battle. But he's still going to be out there doing other temptations. God said, just like in the book of Job, there's only so much I'm allowing you to do. This thing, deceiving the nations to bring the battle, you cannot do yet until the complete time, until the right time for this thing to happen. And so Satan is prevented from that, whether literally by being in the abyss or by God simply just limiting what he is allowed to do, deceive the nations, Um, not being limited from other forms of evil, not being limited from other kinds of temptations. And eventually he will be allowed to deceive the nations, to bring in the battle. Look at verse 4. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, period of time. But notice the, the, the faith of these people, these Christians, these followers of Christ, is commended here. It's commended because of their testimony about Jesus. It's commended because of what they said about Jesus, because of telling people uh, about the gospel. Their faith is commended because they were evangelistic. Their faith stood the test of time because they told people about Jesus. And in truth, our faith is only as resilient as our evangelistic efforts. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, the first resurrection, we believe, is referring to a period of, of resurrection of Christians. Um, in in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, it is said that Jesus is the first fruits of those who will be raised. So Jesus was the first one who's going to be raised for eternity. Yes, Lazarus was raised before Jesus, but Lazarus had to die again. Jesus was raised to never die again. And so it said that there, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first one who's going to be raised to never die again. And then we see throughout Scripture some other things happening. Other believers are resurrected. Talked about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We saw in Revelation chapter 11, uh, the two witnesses are raised again. And then we're going to see it he uh, here, right here uh, in Revelation chapter 20, these martyrs are raised. Uh, that we believe the first resurrection is the period of time that Christians are raised, are, are, are uh, not dead. Uh, they have physically died, but they're alive eternally, uh, is the first resurrection. And now when it says there, uh, the others, the rest of the dead, that's talking about unbelievers, as we're going to see in just a sec. Unbelievers. Uh, will be raised later on, and that will be the second um, resurrection. But they won't be raised to live forever. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So over such, the believers, the second death, that is eternal death, that is hell, has no power over them. So when Jesus brings us back to life, death, second death, has no power to take that away. It's as though Jesus is giving us something that cannot be undone. That's what salvation is. He's giving us a new life that death has no power over. Death can hit at it. Death can try. But death can't do anything to those who have received the first resurrection. Uh, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Again, that's what it says there. He's going to come and he's going to deceive them. That's what he's been limited from being able to do. He's going to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
So he's going to go to the four corners of the earth. That's imagery of everywhere on the planet. He's going to gather everybody together. Gog and Magog, that is some Old Testament references from Ezekiel chapter 38 uh, representing evil, anti-God people. He's going to gather everyone at this point who are not believers, and they're going to be working against God, fighting against God. So basically that's everyone who's left. Um, Satan is, is attempting to amass this massive army as though he is actually able to defeat God. Uh, verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, Christians, and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan gathers the unbelievers to fight against God. The army of evil sets up its camp here, uh, but God intervenes with overwhelming power. A battle, again, is not fought. Fire falls from sky. Biblical language to describe lightning falls from the sky and consumes the enemy army before anybody does anything. The armies are defeated. Satan is thrown into hell. Now, you have to understand something about hell. Our pop cultural references, first of all, don't do it justice, but completely misunderstand it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, that the eternal fire was initially prepared for eternal punishment for Satan and his angels. People say, why does hell exist? It exists for them. It was designed for them. Who are the first resident? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I don't want to spoil that for you. But it's designed for them. So Satan is thrown there. Satan is, is sent there. That is where he's supposed to be. Satan and his angels, his demons, are not in charge of hell. They're not the management. They're not. They're being punished there. They're receiving the punishment there. So all those pop culture references of, of, of Satan sitting on a throne in hell and all his demons going out there and torturing people, that's not accurate. Satan is actually being tortured in hell, or he will be. So will his demons. So will his followers. He will be suffering there. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, this is very significant. The great white, this is called the great white throne judgment, this right here, uh, is there, and, and Jesus is sitting on it. And from his presence, it says, the earth and the sky fled. So now, this is the image of Jesus showing up with his full glory, and the earth can't stand it. The earth is gone at this point. The earth is disappearing. Now, we've already seen all the Christians have been resurrected. They're gone. And then we just saw all the unbelievers in this great big battle were destroyed with the lightning and the fire from heaven, and Satan is gone. So there's no need for earth because nobody's there now at this point in, in the book of Revelation. So God shows up with his full glory and just wipes out the earth, just gone. It's, it's, it's no longer present. But don't worry about it. We're not going to be hanging out in oblivion for all eternity. Uh, we'll see next week uh, the, the new place we're going to get to live. 
but sitting on his throne there, uh, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. This is the unbelievers. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, ju- the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So we have books that are open, and in the books that are open, it's a written account of everything they've done. But in the one book, the book of life, that's whether or not they believed in Jesus. And if their name's not in the book of life, they're in trouble. Let's, let's look at that, and then we'll talk about these books. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So death and Hades. Now, this is what you have to understand, as best we can understand. Um, death is obviously you die. Every, every, you know, it's, it's, a, it's allotted once for man to die. Everybody dies. And what we believe about Hades is Hades is a place unbelievers go when they die. It's not hell. Because the first residence of hell we've just seen, Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan. They're the first ones who get to experience that. Not that other people won't go, they will. But now death and Hades are removed because we don't need them anymore. Death isn't needed anymore. Hades isn't needed anymore. And so they're done away with. Done away with. Verse 15. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. He's thrown into the lake of fire, hell. Now, so remember, just a minute ago, back up a few verses, um, when the unbelievers stand there before God and they're judged. Now, believers have already been taken care of, and I'll explain that. But all these books are opened up, and then over here you've got the book of life. Now, all these books, you know, record what everybody did, and the book of life records whether or not they believed in Jesus. If your name's in the book of life, You've got nothing written in those other books. What's in these other books are all the sins you've done. But if your name's in the book of life, Jesus has already erased what's over there. It's gone. It's not there anymore. There's nothing over here. But if your name's not in the book of life, you've got a whole bunch of stuff in these books. And it says you will be judged by what you've done, by whether or not you believed in Jesus and the sins that have amassed against you whether you have believed in Jesus. But if you believe in Jesus, all that's gone, done away with, no longer held to your account. So the question becomes, do you want to be judged by what you've done or what Jesus did? You see, these unbelievers standing before the great white throne, they're judged by what they did. But Christians, those who believe in Jesus, are judged by what Jesus did. And what Jesus did was die for all of our sins. So all the sins of of mine that would have been filled up multi-volumes over there in the stack of those books is not there anymore. Is wiped clean because Jesus died for that. Jesus died for that and erased everything I did that that were being written in those books. It's gone, not there anymore. And so my name written in the book of life means I gain heaven and eternity. I gain that that first resurrection, not because I did anything great. I did not. I did a bunch of bad, but because of what Jesus did in his death. That gains eternal life if I believe in him. And so those who refuse to believe in Jesus are then judged by what they have done. 
this is one of, if not the most, sad verses in all of Scripture. This, what the book of Revelation should do uh, for Christians is imprint within us a sense of urgency. When we see this, anybody whose name is not in the book of life goes to hell. We ought to be all about telling people about Jesus. No restraint, no fear, all about telling people, everybody we possibly can, about going to heaven. This should be the source of our motivation, getting people to heaven, getting them away from this getting them in to heaven, telling them about Jesus. As many people as we possibly can about the saving grace of the gospel if we tell them about Jesus. Because sin, death, hell, that was not God's intention. That was not God's design. Sin broke God's perfect system in the Garden of Eden. And then death became a part of our everyday life. As things have died, as people die, it becomes a part of every day with us. Death was not God's original intention for his creation, but sin brought it in. So in the end, when Satan and his followers are removed, when uh, then sin will be removed, death will be removed, we can live eternally without that threat hanging over us. You know, for most people, Sin, uh, death is scary. Scary because it's the unknown. But for the unbeliever, it is scary beyond belief. But in reality, for the Christian, death is really just the doorway to realized joy. Death is how we get to heaven. Death is, is <laughs> what we have to go through to get there. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Give it to me. He says, if it weren't for you people and telling more people about Jesus, I'd be all over that death business. Just get me to heaven faster. We know what is coming if we know Jesus, heaven. But we also know there are many in this world who are not going to heaven at this moment. Who have hanging over them that second death that was just written about. They are bound for that second death. But here's the thing, Christian. We have the cure for death. The gospel is the cure for death. I'm trying to picture it, right? If you were a brilliant scientist and you were at home on your dry erase board or iPad, whatever, you figured out the formula for the cure for cancer. Are you going to keep it to yourself and not tell anybody? But you've got the cure for something even worse. You've got the cure for death for everybody. And we so very often keep it to ourselves. The gospel is the cure for death. The gospel is the cure it can fix it all. Not that life's going to be easy. No, man, life is going to be hard. We're guaranteed life's going to be hard. But the gospel can cure death. I mean, try to, I mean, you can 
hear that and, 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 and hear me say that, but just try for a second to wrap your head around that concept for a minute. Picture somebody in your mind living here in Sevier County, an individual, a person, maybe a person who's completely unchurched. They've never walked through the doors of a church in their life. They've avoided weddings and funerals. They've never walked through a church. They don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about God. They've never watched Linus talk on Charlie Brown Christmas. They don't know any of that. All they know is we live, we die, and that's it. And then you come along and you say, there's a cure for that death business. There's a cure for it. Where, where That doesn't have to be the end. That doesn't have to be all there is. There is more after if you believe in Jesus. Just imagine that being received by that person. Or try to imagine a family member that you have. Maybe it's a kid of yours, a child, a brother, a sister, parent, cousin, who doesn't know Jesus. I know some of you, most of you have somebody in your family who doesn't know Jesus. I do. Imagine being the person who gets to lead that person to Christ. Is to bring, I, I've led family members to Christ. Katie and I have led some of our kids, most of our kids. I remember the very first person I led to Christ was my cousin. And, I mean, I can close my eyes, I can go right back, and I can remember that feeling, and I can, I can remember that experience. And, and I don't know how in the world I knew what to say, but I can remember that. But now imagine that family member of yours who, 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 who doesn't know Jesus is out there in the world somewhere and somebody comes along and gives them the gospel and they come to Christ. But you can be that person for somebody else. You can be the one to bring the gospel to somebody else's brother or sister or parent or child or grandparent. If we just bring the gospel, bring it. We've been sent out. We are God's plan A to bring the gospel to the world, and there's no plan B. We have the cure for death. We've got to give it. We've got, it's our only assignment as Christians is to give the gospel. Give it. So the two questions in for you. How many people, let's not even say a week, Let's just say since January, how many people have you given the death cure to so far in this calendar year? How many? How many did you have opportunity to give it to? Or maybe today you need the cure yourself. You need it desperately. You need to be cured of death. You need Jesus. This is your opportunity to believe, to believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all of your sins would be forgiven, all of them. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you want the death cure, if you want to live forever, all you have to do is believe that. Believe it, and then you're a believer for all time. You can't do more sin tomorrow that undoes your decision today to follow Jesus because you're not more powerful than Jesus. You cannot undo what he did on the cross. You believe in him, you're saved for all time. So will you believe in Jesus today? Will you believe? Will you make a commitment within your spirit to tell people about Jesus at every opportunity?